Diagnosing illness today requires the trained eye of a doctor. With machine learning, we might someday be able to diagnose illnesses using only data sets and algorithms. Today on Software Engineering Daily, we are joined by David Kale, a researcher at the intersection of machine learning and clinical data. We discuss the machine learning and research techniques that he is using to diagnose illnesses using neural networks, and we also talk about the challenges of performing data science in hospitals, where the data is mostly confidential. David Kale is a PhD student in computer science and an author on several papers at the intersection of machine learning and clinical data. David, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I have some background in biology and computer science. I did really bad in university at both of them, but uh, I have some, you know, uh, basic understanding of both of them. So, so hopefully this will be an engaging conversation. Um, from, from 2009 to 2012, you worked as the lead data scientist at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. What kind of work does a data scientist at a children's hospital do? So that's a great question. Um, what does a data scientist do at a hospital? Um, and 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 I should say that that I haven't worked as a data scientist at a hospital for the last three years. I've been a PhD student, so so it's changed a lot. Um, the the role of the data scientist at CHLA has changed a lot since I left, and changed a lot while I was there. And it's quite different in other places. But generally, because of the wealth of data that hospitals are collecting. Um, at uh, in electronic health records, um, there's sort of this growing sense that there's a lot of value in that data, and that um, we should be able to learn from that. Um, so classically, what a statistician or sort of a data person at a hospital might do is they would be responsible for facilitating retrospective clinical studies. So doctor come and says. I need you to pull this data for these patients from the database um, and then dump it out and put it in a spreadsheet for me and then I can run this regression analysis and publish a paper. Um, uh, increasingly, what you're starting to see is people being hired to do stuff that looks a lot more like the type of data mining or machine learning work that gets done in industry and other places where the idea is you have questions, you have a lot of rich data, you want to use that data to answer those questions. Um, at CHLA, um, uh, when I was first hired there, there really was no there really was no sort of set role for that. In fact, my my job title at that time was software engineer. I wasn't even a data scientist. They invented that that uh, job title for me in my last year. But my early on, like my mandate was let's pull out data from the pediatric ICU. I was working within doctors who uh, worked in the pediatric uh, intensive care unit uh, in a lab called the Laura P and Leland K Whittier. Um, virtual pediatric intensive care unit. And the vision of the VPICU, which was founded by Randall Wetzel, was, is to build the learning healthcare system. So that every time a, we have a patient uh, that we encounter and we they're sick, uh, a treatment is delivered, and then we observe an outcome, 
we would like the system as a whole to learn from that outcome and get slightly better uh, um, based on what we saw, you know, the data that we collected during that. And this this is not a realized vision. Um, the doctors who treated that patient probably learn from it. Maybe the department learns from it. Um, the hospital might learn from it if they do some kind of quality study to look at, you know, performance in the ICU from the last couple of years. But there really isn't this vision that, like, every time a patient comes into a hospital in the United States um, and then they get discharged – that that information and knowledge gets distributed everywhere through um, you know sharing of data, but also through maybe some kind of like um, machine learning and you know a, a shared sort of predictive model that a lot of hospitals could be using. That's learning from millions of patients being seen at different hospitals. So that was the vision. Um, a more mundane scale. My job was to try and push push the the ball down the field a couple yards in that direction. So early on, I was spending a lot of time just trying to navigate the HR systems, find data, understand data schema, organize data, process it into a form we could do some machine learning. Toward the end of my stay there, um, I actually did a machine learning project where I performed a clustering of 10,000 pediatric ICU patients. And um, this work was published in a paper at the ACM, International Health Informatics Conference in 2012. And the sort of what we found was that when we clustered patients just based on sort of their vital signs and lab tests, that we found high mortality and low mortality clusters, that um, mortality was not uniformly or randomly distributed, that there was clearly some connection between the patterns in the patient's um, data and the outcomes the patients were getting, that, 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 you know, looking at vital signs and stuff could tell us sort of within the first 24 hours could tell us whether these patients were actually um, going to have a good outcome or a bad outcome. And this is without using mortality as a signal without doing supervised learning. So that was a great sort of preliminary proof of concept project. And then shortly after that was published, that's when I got admitted to PhD programs and left. Um, but that that's the kind of work increasingly you're seeing people with my skill set being hired at hospitals are being asked to do. We've got EHR data. Um, we maybe there's a couple doctors who have visions for clinical problems they'd like to solve, and they would like to use advanced techniques that are able to handle sort of the large amount of really really complex data, and they want people who have some idea you know have ideas about how to solve and the skill set to solve those problems or answer those questions using the data. And in particular, there's sort of this feeling that we'd like to move beyond classic clinical informatics techniques, which are um, basically all regression based. So that's kind of what my job was like there. So. Coming back to the idea of there's this disparity between what you said, the ideal world of how a hospital's uh, feedback and improvement loop would work versus the actual reality. And there's this huge delta there. You know, ideally, we would have some uh, some data access, uh, some easy data access, perhaps open data access mm-hmm. that data scientists could use to to mine and learn um about patients and um, and the type of work that you're doing today is is obviously um, you know taking making strides uh, on proving the worth of that sort of approach like exactly how important it is to get this get this going I mean we talk about the the unreasonable effectiveness of uh, recurrent neural networks um, uh, but perhaps you know, really showing people the 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 reality of how important and how much real world benefit we can get out of applying those things to domains like health could really could really um shift the shift the dial on on making some progress towards this stuff and I want to get into your work your your scientific work but sure. first first I want to I want to touch a little more on what 
What causes that delta between where we could be with this stuff and where we actually are? Is it is it you know I always hear about HIPAA and um, and just like you know when when entrepreneurs or software engineers go into a hospital and try to try to propose something to some hospital bigwig, they, they just instantly go up against bureaucracy and slowness and cynicism. And um, so I'm curious, like how much of it is is embedded in the actual policies and how much of it is is cultural and how do we move beyond this this delta sure that's a that's a that's an excellent and very insightful question you're cutting to the heart so so let's start with hipaa um hipaa certainly I have two perspectives on this. Certainly HIPAA puts up some barriers, and there are a lot of other countries that you could go into, um, especially ones with sort of more – with like uh, more uh, – um, with – Kind of government managed healthcare systems that are a little more, little more top down managed and unified. Um, certainly, uh, what you would find is maybe a little more access and a little more openness, or or the 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 the, the opposite the, on the other end of the spectrum, places that are not heavily regulated, where they don't care about patient privacy. It would be easier to go to a hospital as a researcher and say you have some data, and the doctor would just hand it to you and you'd walk out. Um, that said, uh, Dr. Wetzel, my 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 boss at uh, Children's Hospital when I was there, I think he his 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 take on this was was actually correct. He what he would say about HIPAA was HIPAA is, does not actually present real meaningful barriers to to sharing data and and um, doing research and doing sort of informatics type stuff with it. That it it really actually provides a structure within it which. It's not that hard to share data if you're willing – if you actually want to and you're willing to do it and you're willing to put in the effort. Um, when you look at sort of the requirements for anonymization and privacy, um, they're pretty light. It's things like remove last name, remove social security number, remove zip code, that kind of stuff, those kinds of identifiers. Um, the thing we know, the thing we've learned from like the, the attempt to do a second Netflix competition is that in no way, shape or form guarantees anonymization. It's incredibly <laughs> easy to re-identify people if you have, mm -hmm. if you have enough rich data, like as an, ex an example with a patient record would be, um, you know, within an ICU, your average sort of your average day is probably one to two days, but you may have patients who have some really complicated chronic condition who might be in there for uh, months or, you know, like an even longer period of time, have a really long hospitalization. Well, you're only going to have a couple patients like that at the hospital. And if you ask any doctor, if you have an anonymous data set and you ask any doctor, hey, who's this patient with this length of stay of four months? The doctor will be like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy from a couple years ago. <laughs> and there's a, you know, there's a good chance that, that, that the family, certainly the family would know who that patient is. And there's a good chance that the family's friends and everyone on their Facebook feed would know that that, that those people had a, a kid or a family member who was in the hospital for four months. So like – it's not that so so the 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 requirements for anonymization and, and de-identification in HIP are not that bad. Um, it could be the penalties that a hospital could get for violating HIPAA are pretty are pretty severe. So that will make bureaucrats and administrators who are risk averse um, shy away from sharing data and be moved very cautiously. But in general, most of the barriers I found are cultural and institutional. There's um um within within medicine. 
there's a feeling that data represents IP in a way that that's just not true in, in data mining and machine learning research where data sets are freely available on the internet and you know IP is more represented by clever algorithms you come up with. So um, hospitals are, are protective about their data and they don't want to give away, give away something that could have a lot of value to them. Um, another thing, another thing is, is culture is just sort of institutionally, you know, the systems in which the data is collected, digital health record systems, are actually really complex. And a lot of times getting out data of the type that a machine learning researcher would want in kind of the format that person would want is really, <laughs> really hard. And I can't tell you how many times we had conversations when I was at CHLA where we'd say, we would like to get data from the ICU to analyze. And we would get this answer back from like, you know, somebody who's works with the database, like, okay, what data do you want? I don't know. What Whatever, whatever data we have on patients from the ICU. <laughs> no, no, I need you to give me like a list of specific fields and stuff. Well, we don't know what the name of the fields are. Like, just get us everything. You know, here's a patient, here's his ID, just pull everything you've got for that guy. Well, I can't do that. Uh, those kinds of barriers are the, those are the things that I found really slowed things down, you know, and, and a, a lot of that has to do with sort of the design of EHRs and sort of the complexity that, that, that it has to be built into them. Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that EHR systems, like medical records, uh, paper records before them, are designed to capture data, but were not designed in, you know, they they weren't they weren't originally designed with the idea that you know what actually somebody's going to want to get all this data back out uh, at, at you know in, in at sort of a aggregate level and do anal do really detailed fine grained analysis. Um, whereas when you look at when you look at companies like Google and and Facebook and stuff, those are companies who I think from the very get go the vision was the point of getting all the data is to make it useful and analyze it. So their systems were built with that in mind and built to make it easy for them to analyze the data. Um, hospital EHRs were not built that way. So, but a lot of this is changing. Um, so like I know CHLA is going through, going through a lot of internal negotiations to try and bring everything together. Anybody, anywhere who's gathering data in the hospital, whether it's, whether it's um, during treatment or for research and stuff, they're trying to, to find all those people and get them in the room and talk about sort of how can we put all of this together and make it easier for people to, to answer research questions or quality questions and that kind of stuff. But I, my hypothesis is that, that HIPAA is a convenient scapegoat to blame. And maybe for like a startup going in, there's a lot of paperwork they have to sign and that's what they perceive. But honestly, I really think it has a lot more to do with culture and um, um, and like sort of willingness. Like, you know, that if people see a lot of value in getting all that data, they will make it happen. Now, it may require a lot of work and a lot of money, but they'll make it happen. But I think a lot of, a lot of times, a lot of hospitals um, – don't don't immediately see what the return is going to be. It's like, how is this going to help me treat patients tomorrow? Well, it's probably not. It's probably not going to help things for another five or ten years. But we this, have to make investments. It seems like such a perverse tragedy of the commons to me. Like, I think uh, at least my generation and uh, probably other older generations and maybe even younger generations have this obsession with anonymity and privacy. And I think it's totally insane. I think that people are so afraid that their insurance rates are going to get hiked. Uh, they're so afraid that their anonymous comment on a blog is going to get unveiled through machine learning uh, and bloom filters and stuff. But like, apparently people don't recognize the upside of this yeah. stuff. Like, yeah. Just de-anonymize your information. Like, I'm, I'm so unafraid of having my information de-anonymized. Like, you want to find 
all the crap about me on Facebook and Google and whatever. Like I just I don't I don't care anymore. Give me the machine learning algorithm that diagnoses my my illness rather than this black magic uh, you know, status quo that we currently have. Yep. Um, <laughs> that's, that is certainly true. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I sort of, I, I don't, I think I'm kind of halfway between in that there, there are times when I feel protective and I, and I don't trust a lot of the people that, that are gathering my data, but I think healthcare is one area where actually almost all the doctors and researchers that I've interacted with have, 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 have ha- demonstrate a real respect and, and a real desire to use this to act, to create to create actual value, not business value, but value in terms of improving outcomes for patients and that kind of stuff. So, I think this is one area where um, where where they need to work hard. It is consents consenting for research is an interesting thing where. Um, you know, if a doctor's doing like a prospective study and and they need to intentionally enroll patients in a in a study or something like that to, to get their data for this for this for their research, um, there's kind of seems to be sort of two tribes of thought about that. One being that um, the hospital the the policy should be an opt out. Like people should be should sort of generally be be enrolled in these studies and then they should actually have to ask to not be enrolled in the study. Um, and that's, uh, yes. Yeah, and that comes from a culture of fear where doctors worry that patients are dumb, and if you ask actually ask them to contribute their data research, they'll just say no because they're scared and they don't know what's going on. And that's an understandable thing because, um, especially you know, at a place like CHLA, you have a lot of patients coming in who are not native English speakers, and it's their kid who's sick. And it's just like, you know, and then some doctor's stopping by and trying to explain that he wants to, to, <laughs> to gather a kid's data. And it's like, no, I, you know what? I just want my kid to get better and all that. But I've met a lot of people and I found them very persuasive who said, you know what? No, that's our job. Like, like it should not be opt out. It should be opt in. And we, we, it should be our job to explain to patients why this is important and why they should contribute their research. And that, that if we work hard at that, Will help create a culture where people will will not be as fearful as as you mentioned, Jeff. That like you know their data is going to be abused, but that people understand the value and they buy into it. So mm. I think I think medicine needs to to work a little bit harder. They they kind of need to be a little less arrogant about this and be a little more sort of open and really explaining to people like you know look at all the great research that that folks at like CHLA are doing and and th- and explain you know this is going to help your kid maybe not tomorrow but it's going to help kids 5 to 10 years from now if your kid participates in the study and actually you know i've been in the ICU and i've seen patients who were enrolled in like ventilator studies and stuff and and the doc- and i've seen the doctors interact with the with the patient's parents and like the patients know, or the parents know the doctor. They know their kids participating in research, and they actually seem satisfied and proud of that. Um, mm. And they seem to understand, like, like you know, that I was in there um, a few months ago. Um, a doctor was telling me about a ventilator study, and he introduced me to the parents. He's like, "Oh, hi, I want to introduce you to, you know, this is David. He's a, a data analysis guy, and you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the study and you know this equipment we have hooked up." And the patient and the parents are like, oh, "Okay, that sounds great." So I actually think it's I think it's very doable, but I think. The medical researchers have to work hard at it to not, you mm. know, and the computer scientists too. Like, don't be jerks. 
um, communicate, be open, um, and explain the value and accept that some people might say no and won't be interested. But I think a lot of people, given a chance, will actually be very receptive to that. So. Mm. Okay. Well, so I could talk about this policy stuff for I days. Know, it's, but it's, we- <laughs> and, and you know what, dude? It's so important. The major barriers to making an impact to sort of, you know, when you look around and you say, why is, let's say, machine learning not making as big an impact in medicine yet as as we observe in other areas, which is not entirely true. It actually is making an impact in some areas. But the, the major – there's two – I think there's two major barriers. Um, one of them has to do with the fact that actually it's a much harder problem, like like building a model to predict disease, let's say, and deploying that in the wild is actually – the bar for success is much higher there than, um, say, deciding what ad to show you because – for Google, <laughs> for Google or someone like that who's doing ads at a scale of you know millions or billions of users, as long as on average you're doing a slightly better job, you're going to make a lot of money. And if there's outlier pay, uh, users who don't get ads and don't click on them, who cares? In medicine, you have a much smaller scale. You have maybe tens of thousands, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of patients. And the outliers are people who might die. And that's a high cost we're not willing to pay. So – so the the bar's a little bit the the measure the metric for success is a little bit harder. The second thing um, that really, but besides that, all the barriers are not technical. The barriers are all cultural. It all has to do with like like getting around the social and regulatory and other barriers that get in the way. Of, you know of of like let's say we build a a, a predictive model that um, uh, we think like wow this this seems to be able to predict sepsis predict sepsis 12 hours earlier than like existing things if you want to use it's going to be 10 years before that's at the bedside because it's going to be classified as a medical device and now it's going to have to go through like you know complex FDA process and all that kind of stuff so <laughs> those are much bigger barriers than than the technical ones the technical ones if we could get all the data we, we machine learning people AI people could probably solve a lot of these interesting problems um, or at least make things better but um, but they have to navigate all these regulatory and, and social and cultural barriers, and those are hard. It makes it it makes the 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 upside financially much lower. Like you know, like you could do you can you can make a startup on the web and be rich within a couple years, or you can um, slave away with the FDA for like ten years and maybe and then you have to go and try and sell your thing to the hospital. So, um, so right, well. So, I mean, we, we could continue talking about these cultural barriers, but um, we're trying to do a show about software engineering. We want to help these people create models to serve better <laughs> ads to yeah. people with their Silicon Valley startup. Um, we're less concerned with the uh, changing the healthcare system on software engineering daily. Yeah. So, um, with, <laughs> but with that in mind, I mean, uh, you know, okay. So you mentioned there is, there has been some significant progress in terms of how machine learning, data science is is helping healthcare. What what is the current state of? I mean, are you talking about on the level of diagnosis, or or what exactly? Where where is machine learning um, actually improving healthcare? So um, I think a couple of things. Uh, one one area in terms of research, and, and my bias is my bias like is certainly going to be much more towards since I've been in academia for a couple of years. My bias is going to be toward sort of when I think about this, when I go to answer this question, my thoughts are often often going to be um, about oh I know this professor is doing this really great work, but like a good example is. Um, Several labs at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, um, led by professors like Pete Solovich and uh, John Gutag, 
these guys have been plugging away on these problems for like 20 years now, like even back into the 80s. They were doing things where they were using machine learning to build predictive models for problems ranging from like detecting irregular heartbeats to um, um, predicting sepsis and other kinds of um, you know diseases that might develop during a hospitalization. And they've had a lot of success in building models that – you know, they, they can show beat sort of things that are deployed in standard like a Phillips monitor or something like that. And as I mentioned, you know, a lot of times the barriers that they run into is they go to Phillips and say, I have this new model. You should buy this. And, and Phillips says like, nah, I don't know. So, <laughs> um, um, so there's just like if you go and you, you look up like um, Pete Solovich uh, um, uh, or John Gutag, you can see just droves of research that those guys are doing. Um, that that really is just you know like extremely good serving um, solving a lot of problems not at sort of the big data scale but solving these very very particular types of problems related to to irregular physiology in the um, in the in like the ICU or in the hospital so another example another a good example I actually think that that doesn't necessarily sort of sort of um, at first glance may not seem like machine learning but if you think about sort of everything that went into it you realize like this is like the same set of tools that machine learning people do is um, severity of illness scoring in the pediatric ICU this is something that my 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 CHLA boss again Randall Wetzel was involved in they have a score called the prism 3 score that's a, a pediatric risk of mortality score and the purpose of this score is to um, is to enable doing standard uh, st performance metrics standardized across hospitals. So, the main measure of performance in pediatric ICUs and ICUs in general is mortality rate, i.e., what 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 fraction of your patients are dying. The intuition being, if more if a higher fraction of your you know the more of your patients who come into your ICU and die, the worse you're doing. Um, there's a problem, however, with that as a metric when you're comparing one hospital versus another. Um, uh, and that is that, that mortality really depends not just on your the, the performance of your ICU and, and the treatments the patients receive, but also on like just how sick were they to begin with. And, um, and in particular, what you see is uh, a hospital like CHLA, for example, a large urban hospital, is going to receive a lot of like like – the most sick patients because it's in a large urban area um, with with a really diverse population but also it is sort of a it's like a regional center of excellence um, so if at sort of satellite regional hospitals that are like you know maybe three hours into the inland empire if they have a really sick kid comes in and they rapidly realize like this is kind of I don't think we have the expertise for this they put them on a helicopter and they send them to CHLA so, mm. um, so CHLA gets a much higher, much, much sicker sort of base, uh, population than other hospitals. So there's a good chance its mortality rate is going to be biased by that and maybe be mm. biased in the higher direction. So one of the things that people have come up with is they try to build um, mortality risk models, you know, essentially a predictive model predicting, um, the probability, you know, sort of, uh, quantifying the probability that this patient is going to die. And they do it based on measurements taken very, very early in the patient's stay or at time of admission. The idea being that, um, you know, measurements taken within, let's say, the first 12 to 24 hours, and in particular measured um, before treatment has begun, do a reasonably good job of quantifying sort of how sick is this patient when they arrived at the ICU. 
And so if we can build models that do a pretty good job of, of predicting mortality from just those early measurements, we can, we can sort of reasonably argue that, that what that model is doing is it's quantifying essentially the, the, just how sick is that patient um, mm. it, with respect to their risk of dying. Then what you can do, if you have a model that you validate and you show is pretty good, you can take that model and you can apply that to any given hospital and say, what is your predicted mortality rate in your pop- – over the last year, when we apply this model, it predicts that 10% of your patients would die. And then we can look at your actual mortality rate and we can create something called a standardized mortality ratio that's saying that, um, you know, oh, look – 8% of your patients died, the model predicted 10, so uh, your ratio is 0.8. Hey, that's pretty good. And the general idea being that if your ratio is less than 1, you're doing a good job. If your ratio is greater than 1, you're doing a bad job. And then what you can do is if you can create a large you can create a large national database, you can in, you know, actually build a really good model and then you can give hospitals like regular reports comparing them to other hospitals and giving them suggestions about things, you know, you can you can start to investigate and find out the places that are doing well that have good ratios. Um, you know, what are what kinds of policies do they have that the places that are doing bad don't have and what can they do to try and improve? Fascinating. So I want to get into talking about your recent work. Sure. Um, you, you recently worked on a paper called Learning to Diagnose with LSTM, Recurrent Neural Networks. Right. And this paper you wrote focused on time series data that exists in the intensive care unit. Uh-huh. What types of data are, are present in the intensive care unit? So all kinds. The intensive care unit is um, – it's sort of a level of care that's halfway between the general hospital wing and the emergency room. Um, and it's, it's you, if a patient comes in and they're in imminent, um, uh, uh, imminent risk of dying, they will go to the emergency room. And if the patient is sort of, you know, has no immediate risk, they, they would go to sort of a, a, you know, be admitted to like the normal hospital. The ICU is where your condition is fragile um, and they're, they're, focuses on either stabilizing you or closely monitoring you to make sure that you don't deteriorate. And um, and so this is where you actually get the highest level of measurement because um, in the emergency room, they have to act immediately to try and save your life. So they don't have time to hook up a bunch of things. ICU, they do have time. And so this is where you get a lot, a lot more sort of uh, like intubation, um, a lot of like physiologic monitoring, those kinds of things. It also happens to be the place where you have the highest caregiver to patient ratio. So you have the most surveillance in terms of human beings um, treating and monitoring the patient. So you get all kinds of things. Um, when you think about doctor, when you think about House MD, the old TV show, and you think about the patient sitting in bed with a whole bunch of things hooked up to them, that's basically that's intensive care. So uh. you're getting, so you're getting um, waveforms coming off bedside monitors with like heart rate, respiratory rate, other things like that. Um, um, and, and you know, when you have waveforms, you can you can do much more complex things like look at heart rate variability and and you know look at sort of the shape of the QRS complex, but also you get all kinds of charted data from nurses and doctors, so hourly vital signs, um, any lab tests that are ordered where they draw blood and then measure your pH and your glucose and things like that, go into the patient chart. Um, you could, in, in principle, you would have um, uh, notes and other assessments by doctors. 
Um, so it's basically just about every possible piece of data that you could imagine a hospital measuring could, in principle, be gathered in, a, in an ICU. Um, okay. Genetics. So, no genetics. We don't have genetics yet. <laughs> right. Not yet. Yeah. Hopefully, Theranos is not a sham. Um, My fingers are crossed, man. I love. I, I know. Love seriously. Cool yeah. It, it really is, in theory. Uh. <laughs> so in in my paper in particular, um, uh, out of the data that I just listed, there's a couple things we don't use. We aren't using the streaming vital signs coming off of the bedside monitor. Um, and that's because that data, while obviously, you know, you sort of see it and it's sort of what you think of, it's actually not routinely collected by most um, hospitals. Okay. Um, well, so, so I get that there's like tons and tons of data. So I want to get to the goals of the paper. So okay, learn, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Learn, learning to diagnose with LSTM recurrent neural networks. Yes. What were your goals in writing the paper? Okay. So the primary goal, um, uh, if, if I may be facetious for a moment, the 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 uh, the absolutely primary goal as a PhD student was to try and publish this paper before anyone else did this because there there was a a short window I realized over the summer where I was like some people have done recurrent neural nets for clinical for sort of different types of health time series but nobody has done it on actual sort of these modern EHR um, uh, um, time series coming out of a hospital and I re and I knew other people were going to try it or were actively working on it and I wanted to be the first to do it so. Uh, to be cynical for a moment, that was our primary goal. Um, uh, Zach, well, you dodged the scoop. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, even if it doesn't get accepted, it's currently under review at ICLR. I think it hopefully will get accepted, but even if it doesn't, uh, it's out there now, so we dodged the scoop. But um, the, more, the more general goal is um, – I've had I've had a growing feeling over the last couple of years that 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 deep learning seems like it should be a really good fit for medicine, modulo some concerns about interpretability and things like that. In that um, in that um, the things we want to model, especially in physiologic time series like I'm working with from the ICU, are incredibly complex. We know sort of the underlying physiology is really complex, and that what we're really trying to, to model are latent disease processes. We know we have these measurements of heart rates and blood pressures and things like that, but really those are just observable symptoms of some other some underlying path you know pathophysiology that has to do with sort of like systems shutting down or going wrong and things like that. And when you start talking about sort of complex problems like that, um, that sound that sounds like a deep learning problem. It sounds like a perfect deep learning problem. Mm -hmm. like we want to learn a latent space representation that captures and disentangles the correlations that we see in our actual observed measurements. Um, and recurrent neural nets are such a they're really such a powerful and flexible architecture. I mean, they're they're in terms of sequential models. Recurrent neural nets are not the only choice. There's a lot. They're like like um, whenever I do talk about related work uh, in this area, I can list like at least half a dozen different approaches that other people are trying in this general space. You know, Gaussian processes and subspace clustering and uh, Bayesian models and uh, dynamic Bayes nets and um, you know just time series mining that kind of stuff. But what recurrent neural nets give us is is this real sort of like one we don't have to encode prior knowledge like you would if you're going to do if you need to do feature engineering or if you want to um, 
uh, uh, wire together a dynamic Bayes net and you need to try and build in sort of, you know, uh, knowledge about physiology, like, oh, this, this thing, the, the, this equation determines sort of your blood pressure based on this thing. Neural nets, we don't, you know, sort of assuming we have enough data to actually learn something, we don't need to do that with a neural net. They can capture long-term dependencies in time series, and that makes a lot of sense in health, um, where our intuition is that um, we really want to sort of capture interactions between sort of what do you look like at time of admission, and then what do you look like sort of shortly after treatment begins, and then what do you look okay, like? Okay, this this is important, so I want to take a small detour here. Sure, Could sure. you define, define the term long-term time dependency? Okay, sure. So a long-term time dependency is, I think, I think sort of, you know, like technically speaking, anything, anything in terms of classic time series models, um, a long-term time dependency is anything that's kind of beyond whatever sort of assumptions, conditional independence assumptions your model's making. So like a classic time series autoregressive model where you're predicting, um, the um, uh, the let's see the next time step so like let's say the next heart rate the patient has based on some immediate history usually you have to define a fixed window you have to say okay I'm going to predict it based on the previous 12 hours I mean 12 hours is a pretty long dependency but um, but you could imagine dependencies that actually are much longer than that that go beyond the window of your model and a model that makes a fixed window assumption like that is not going to be able to capture dependencies beyond its window. And nearly every time series model must make assumptions of that type. Um, it's called a Markov assumption. It's assuming that mm. like you know conditioned on this immediate history, the next the next uh, time step or the thing I'm predicting is independent of anything you know in the distant um, history. Okay, so 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 we have some recognition of uh, why recurrent neural networks are are helpful. Yep. What the importance of a long term time dependency is. Let's think about a type of prediction, whichever you prefer, diagnosis, length sure. of stay in a hospital, mortality, whatever you want. Yeah. How could an LSTM be used for this type of prediction? Walk me through an example of of building an, an experiment. Okay, absolutely. So um, because the purpose of our project – this is like a, a proof of concept um, – the purpose of our project was to was to sort of just figure out can we actually discover meaningful signal in the data? Like can an LSTM be used to solve a relatively, you know, quote unquote simple problem in this space? So the problem we posed in our paper was um, we the name of the paper is learning to diagnose. That's kind of for the lay audience. The problem we're doing is better called phenotyping. Um, phenotyping is a um, a problem, you know, a phenotype is basically an observable characteristic related to the health of a of an organism. That's sort of the clinical definition. Phenotyping, in it, the way the way people use the term in biomedical informatics, can really just be thought of um, as classification. In other words, I have a patient. Here's everything I know about the patient. I want the classifier to answer the question, does this patient have this disease? So it's a little bit different. It's not predictive modeling in that there's not a temporal aspect. We're not trying to do early diagnosis or something like that. We're literally, we're just feeding in what we're using the LSTM for is based on everything we recorded about a patient in the ICU, we want to feed all of that in. And at the end, we want the model to just tell us, does this patient have septic shock or not? Or did this patient have septic shock at some point? There's a mm -hmm. there's funniness about the temporality. Is, um, is this synonymous with the optimization objective? Um, you can you can think of you can think of this as being um, it is an optimization problem in that 
the the objective function of the loss function of this thing is the predictive the predictive loss. So we're we we know a true label. We know this patient has a disease or not, and then we're asking the model to predict. Um, you know, the, the, the goal of the model is to assign as high a probability as possible to the disease that the patient actually have. So we are optimizing that. That is our objective function that we are optimizing. Um, if you mean optimization in the sort of the sense of like, you know, kind of more of a operational thing, then I think it's a little different from that interpretation. Um, but so, so this is, this is in machine learning parlance, this is a classification problem. Given a patient object, um, feed it into the statistical classifier, and the classifier will just tell us. For a, uh, in the paper, we do 128 different um, ICD-9 codes, um, diagnostic codes. Just tell us for each of those codes what is the probability that this patient had that received that code um, for this stay. So it's just a straight up binary classification problem. Mm. Um, the the benefits of the LSTM as we saw them would be, first of all, LSTMs and sequential models in general can handle variable length objects in ways that sort of standard machine learning models such as a logistic regression or a decision tree or a neural network cannot handle. Um, um, you know, we have patients, some patients had lengths of stay, you know, had t um, episodes that lasted 12 hours. Other patients had episodes that lasted three months. And that is the kind of thing where if you wanted to apply a standard model, and we do this as some of the baselines in our, in our paper, if you want to apply a standard model like a logistic regression or a neural net, you have to do something to produce a fixed length representation, a, a vector of features for, that pa for each of those patients. And um, that's something that's just a little dissatisfying when you have these pa – some patients have 12-hour lengths of stays and some of them have three months. You know, you can imagine inventing a bunch of features like minimum – the minimum measurement, the maximum measurement, the mean, maybe a trend, difference between first and last, et cetera. But there's a little bit of a latent worry that you'll lose some kind of temporal resolution um, if you're applying that to some patients who have – short length of stay, other patients who have long length of stay. And also, also just the promise of deep learning in general is the idea that we shouldn't, we don't need to do feature engineering and that using these kinds of flexible models and, 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 you know, using learning, uh, if you have enough data, the model can kind of learn the features that are important. Mm. So, so, so a recurrent neural net and a long, long short-term memory network, LSTM, seem like a really good fit if for no other reason than because we have these variable length sequences that we want to classify. So, mm. so with an LSTM, um, just to talk a little about software, we used, um, we, we built ours out of Theano, uh, which is this, this, um, symbolic math package created by university of Montreal. And it's one of the popular frameworks for doing deep learning. It's very, very similar to the Google TensorFlow. And we're kind of, I think the, the sense in the community is TensorFlow is sort of the future of Theano because it's going to be much better supported and engineered because it's coming out of, you know, Google as opposed to a bunch of overworked grad students. <laughs> um, so we will we'll eventually migrate to that. But we've been using um, uh, Theano. So we built our own recurrent neural net out of that. Uh, you don't need to do that. There's actually lots of packages that have really good implementations like uh, Keras and Lasagna. Um, if you move outside of Python, you can use um, Torch. Uh, cafe. I don't know if they have recurrent, good recurrent neural nets, but you know, there's a lot of packages. There's DL4J for uh, Java. So um, we built our own LSTM, and basically what we do is we built a recurrent layer where what you do is is the hidden the hidden unit activations, the hidden state that the model is estimating at time t 
is a function of the previous hidden state at time t minus 1 and the inputs at time t, where in this case, inputs are what was the patient's heart rate, what was the patient's pH, et cetera, at this time step. And you just feed those, you feed, you feed a sequence of measurements into the model. And then what it will do is it'll create hidden state activations at each time step for that sequence. And so what a, a, an LSTM layer will give you, given, um, let's say, 24 hours of measurements, a sequence uh, of length 24, it'll spit out a sequence of length 24 of hidden state activations. And then um, uh, what we would do to do classification is we would take the hidden state activations at the last time step, and that would be fed into like our output layer, which is like essentially a one, one layer neural network or something like that. And um, so this is actually a fairly uh, – the, the in, inner workings of a long short-term memory network are quite complex uh, and, and, and look kind of crazy when you look at the diagram of it. Um, and, and it's not the kind of thing you'd actually want to build by hand, like actually try to you know, um, code in the, the gradients using something like Theano. Theano will do the gradients for you, which makes it much less likely that you'll screw it up. Um, but the model conceptually is really, really simple. It's a sequential model that you can feed one measurement in at a time, and it will update the, the internal state, its estimate of the state of the system um, for, each, for each observation you get. And then you can use those hidden state activations to do any number of things. In our case, our task was um, classify the entire sequence based on the hidden state. But you could imagine also you could use those hidden states to try and predict the next time step. Um, you could imagine using uh, an, a model like this to um, – like one thing we've talked about doing that we'd have to find data to do this is we'd love to feed in a sequence of measurements and then generate a clinical note. Like what, what note might the doctor write about this patient given mm. this set of measurements? That looks a lot – that's just like what people have been doing um, for can – you, Can you read the note after it gets output? I don't know. That, the hope is you should be able to. When you look at um, – when you look at um, – so like my, my collaborator on this, Zach Lipton, I should mention him from UC San Diego, um, who really really deserves a lot of the credit for this work. He is sort of the um, – uh, at the start of the fall, he was the recurrent neural network expert, and I basically recruited him. We're friends, and I was like, dude, let's do this project. You knew RNN, so teach me, and let's do this project. So he has another project that he recently did where um, he trains a recurrent neural net to generate beer reviews based on data they scraped off of Beer Advocate. If you feed it in a type of beer and a star rating, it will generate a natural language review that somebody might write for a beer of that type with that score. Uh, and when you look at those reviews, they are uncanny. Um, you can tell – I'm not sure this was written. You know, It's like there's something a little awkward about it, but they are really impressive and it really captures a lot. So uh, if we had enough – if we had enough data, like I think we'd need a lot of data. We would need like millions of examples, which I don't know if we'll ever – it'll be a long time before you get millions of patient examples. But if we had a million ICU time series paired with um, um, notes the doctors wrote, I think you could probably train a recurrent neural net to take in those measurements and sort of reproduce or, or you know predict what type of note a doctor might write. Now, mm. to, to the question of whether it would actually be readable to a human, probably not because doctors write garbage. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was the joke. I was wondering whether you got it. Yep. Okay. Well, so so I want to I want to start like uh, navigating towards the close of this conversation. Sure. So, what were the results of the experiments? So, so the results of the experiment were like the, the meta conclusion was 
yes, a recurrent neural network can discover meaning. This is really weak and not that exciting of a conclusion, but I, this is the, I think this is the most confident thing I would want to say about this. The neural network, the recurrent neural network can discover meaningful structure in these clinical time series. Um, when we compare the classification results across these different diseases with um, first linear uh, baselines, it clobbers linear baselines, even with hand-engineered features. Um, when we compare it with uh, a multi-layer perceptron trained on, which is a, you know just a multi-layer neural network trained on hand-engineered features, it also beats that. It doesn't clobber it, but it beats it. Um, so, so, so the sort of intermediate conclusion is, aha, this worked. This is a this is a line of research pursuing because this model can work, and because it has so many of these wonderful virtues. Um, um, because there's a lot of problems we didn't solve in this paper related to irregular sampling, missing data, bias in measurements, noise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that with enough data in principle, a neural network or a recurrent neural network probably can handle. Um, you would not want to use this thing to diagnose patients yet. It's certainly not ready for prime time. But a I believe that a model based on this architecture with with you know sort of the problem formulated properly and with sufficient training data could eventually we will be able to build a recurrent neural net based diagnostic model that can actually be able to support doctors in making good decisions um, you know and make better decisions maybe identify diagnoses early um, you know predict patient deterioration those kinds of things. Like mm. I, I'm, I'm very bullish about these models. I think that they will be able to work. So zooming out, uh, you know, we've done several shows about deep learning. I've been reading about deep learning a lot lately. Cool. Do you think, do you think deep learning is overhyped right now? Or if it is, what is the axis on which it is overhyped? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I definitely think it's overhyped. You can put me in the camp of people that are deeply worried about um, about a uh, not deeply, but that are latently worried about a, another AI winter, uh, based on like sort of the way things are getting hyped in the media about deep learning. Um, nonetheless, but I think the axis along which it's really is getting hyped is is sort of the like. Well, intelligent machines are right around the corner. Like, <laughs> no, you know, no disrespect to Ray Kurzweil and those guys, but they've been predicting the singularity is 20 years down the road for like 40 years now, right? Yeah, like they just keep moving the horizon of that. I, 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 I think I'm, I'm put me more in the Andrew Ng camp of I don't think, like, to to claim that look, we can use a deep convolutional neural net trained on millions of images. Um, to do, quote unquote, human level object recognition, to 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 go from that to like, well, we've basically built artificial brains at this point. No, like like most, I think most deep learning experts would agree. Like, deep learning is loosely inspired by the way the brain works, but really is not a plausible model for how brains actually work. And that mm. the successes of deep learning are coming in. Um, these really, really narrow verticals, like these very, very specific tasks, like image recognition, um, uh, speech recognition, machine translation. What are the What are the commonalities between those narrow domains? Um, really, re lots and lots of data. Um, a very, very well-defined, specific problem that is that is clearly that is clearly solvable, and that that um, the structure of the data. And the nature of the problem lends itself to deep learning. In particular, when you look at sort of 
one of the things that sets medicine aside from a, a different mixed medicine slightly different from like text and um, and image data is um, image image data is homogeneous uh, in the sense that the input is a bunch of pixel intensities and and the kinds of features that you'd want to learn to build like a good cla image classifier tend to be like sort of conf detecting patterns within those features. Same thing is true of um, text. You know, it's homogeneous data. You have like words that end up getting encoded as like vectors of some type, maybe like a one-hot encoding or something. Um, same thing for speech. You have this sort of homogeneous data. And it's really sort of patterns within that homogeneous data that are important. Medicine, there is kind of a sort of – there is this sort of question of like – we have heart rates and blood pressures and pHs and other things that have these very, very different distributions. And like, you know, it seems somewhat different uh, in some sense. But I think I think the main thing is just massive amounts of data, massive amounts mm. of labeled data. Like when you look at sort of where are these things actually not just interesting from a research standpoint, but are really are like, you know, if you're going to build a speech recognition system to be deployed on a phone to to allow people to search for things like you would want to do that based on deep learning. Why? Because you can get tons of data. Like you can just get lots and lots and lots of labeled data. And if you have lots of labeled data for a for a very doable task, a neural net will will be able to do it. Like, you know, if you can find the right architecture, you will be able to do it. So, but presumably the world is getting increasingly schematized, so maybe uh, maybe maybe that is the um, the line that will go parallel with uh, us having increasingly human-like systems, perhaps? Well, I think the things that are most interesting from that standpoint in the deep learning world are um, two sort of two lines of work. The, the work on deep reinforcement learning, so like the work coming out of Google DeepMind where they're training systems to play video games. And and these are systems that where, – where like the input to the thing the, – the, the input – to the to the, the the deep reinforcement learner is just like a screenshot is pixel intensities and they're not giving it any kind of pre, prior knowledge about the game or how the game works or the structure of the game um, they're not building in any kind of you know game specific knowledge in any way shape or form they're literally just feeding this thing screenshots um, you know um, of the image giving it control, allowing it to, to fiddle around with the controls, and then giving it sort of some kind of end objective, like you won or you lost or this was your score. And these things are learning to actually be able to play games, in some instances better mm. than people. That's mm. pretty damn impressive, and that's yeah. really, really interesting. The other thing is the work on these these um, like these like sort of memory networks or neural Turing machines where they're hooking up a recurrent neural net to some kind of um, classic computer science data structure like a stack. And what you're seeing, you know, there's recent work out of Facebook AI where they trained one of these systems to to they trained it on the Lord of the Rings and found it was able to answer basic reading comprehension questions um, about the Lord of the Rings, like you know who was Sam with on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, and the thing would respond with Frodo. And not only would it say Frodo, but it could actually retrieve passages from the book. Um, you know, say specific sentences where it actually talks about Sam and Frodo on the stairs of Kirith Ungol. And what you saw is this thing has some ability to actually memorize. At the same time, it's it's using the neural architecture to do pattern recognition. Um, it's using these these external memories to actually memorize facts, to write down things. Mm. Both of those things are pretty – like that's starting to look like types of – you know, human-level types of behavior, which is pretty interesting. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So – I'm I'm really excited about them. I think we have to be careful about overhyping them. I think the the profound question within academia 
you know, deep learning is clearly hot. The question is, is this a fad that will go away the way it did in the 90s, where like eventually we found, you know what, um, SVMs with kernels are better than neural nets at that point. Is this yet another fad where neural nets have gotten ahead of other techniques, but then in five or 10 years, somebody else, somebody will invent some other technique that will actually do just as well as a neural net. And, and it won't require nearly as much data or training. And, um, uh, and so people will want to use that instead because it's easier to use and computationally efficient. So the question is, will that happen? Or are, is, are the, the progress and the strides that deep learning have made, uh, like, is, that, is it here to stay? Essentially, like, you know what, in speech recognition, any, any future speech recognition system will use deep learning in some form or fashion. Maybe like, you know, deep learning will just be sort of a, come a com, become a commodity component. And the real insights that let you get the next breakthrough won't have anything specifically to do with deep learning. But deep learning will be an essential piece of that system. Mm. Um, I'm willing to, if I had to bet money, I'd say it's the latter. I think there's areas where deep learning is just here to stay. Um, so Fascinating. Well, that sounds like a great place to close off. Uh, David, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your recent work and your macroscopic view of where deep learning is taking us. Um, appreciate you coming on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I was really excited uh, to hear from you. I, I like talking about this work and evangelizing this stuff. Um, and I think deep learning is a cool thing. And and um, unlike a lot of pieces of machine learning, or parts of machine learning, um, it's it's very much empirical, and you can get really good at it through trial and error and developing an intuition for what works. So it's something that I think, you know, for folks out there who are interested in it, who don't have time to pursue a PhD, there's no reason why you can't turn yourself into an expert on this stuff. So I highly encourage people to, to check it out and play with it. That's great. Well, thanks for coming on the show, David. You bet, man. 